It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocy, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosi. This show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. And joining me on the, the Film Sociology phone is longtime Indiana film critic and somebody who we like to refer to as the IFJA enforcer, Bob Bloom. How you doing, Bob? I'm doing fine. I just hope I don't have to do any more enforcing soon <laughs> uh, to, to get a little behind the scenes there's a couple studios that we we will not name sometimes they don't exactly show us stuff right away if ever and uh, to use the tagline from dirty harry we don't assign bob we just unleash him thank you i i like being the one who has to frighten people yeah exactly so says something about our group um yep. okay so this is a big point this weekend, uh, this summer, with the with the big film opening this weekend, because there's only a handful of films coming out this summer that I actually care about and had concern over. And of course, the big film is uh, is Wonder Woman. Gal Gadot uh, re- reprises her role, being after being the best thing in Batman versus Superman. It's directed by Patty Jenkins, who's best known for the Academy Award winning film Monster over a decade ago. And uh, and I guess I'll, I'll open the floor with you, Bob. What did you? What were your your thoughts on Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman was the best Marvel movie DC ever made. <laughs> and it, they kind of didn't really set the bar very high between Suicide, Suicide Squad and Batman versus Superman, but it does it does expel, uh, excel expectations. Yeah, it was a very good movie, and uh, what I wrote in my review, and Joe Shear also pointed this out, <clears throat> was that it looks like Patty Jenkins actually maybe watched something like Captain America, the first Avenger, or was aware of the template 
that the Marvel movies use mm-hmm. because it, even though it's a DC movie, at times it does have a Marvel feel to it. You know, it, it doesn't have that dark, serious, gravitas undertone that the, you know, the past uh, few serious, uh, excuse me, the few, uh, few previous DC movies, you know, Man of Steel, uh, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad. You know, these movies took themselves too seriously. Wonder Woman was serious, but it also had a nice undercutting of undercurrent of sexual politics. It was, in a weird way, despite being set during World War One and showing the carnage of World War One, it was an adventure film, but without the angst. I guess you could yeah. say of the previous DC movies. Yeah, there. Actually, that's a good comparison because the fact that you are dealing with World War One, and and it does get in some dark territory, but not quite like the last two films already or three films mentioned for that matter. Um, we do get we do get young Diana in what is now my new favorite cinema location, an island filled with Amazon women. And uh, it's not bad when Connie Nielsen is your mother and your aunt slash trainer is Robin Wright. Yeah, that. I'd go there if they, uh, <laughs> I could find it. Token eunuch, and and they don't really explain how uh, Chris Pine gets into the world, but he does. And 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 for, for the record, ladies and gentlemen, he's not Lyle Wagner in this. He is more actually subtle comic relief. And yeah, as as, as Bob mentioned, there's a little se- there's some fun sex- sexual tension between the two, uh, but but he's more sidekick than say dude in distress. He he's more. Uh... Let's see. Let's do a Star Trek analogy. <laughs> he, he's more Dr. McCoy than Captain Kirk. Less hungover than, than Bones. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but once he arrives, and then her going into the uh, into the mortal world, into uh, World War I uh, planet Earth, um, the film does, I, I, I said, it, it takes a tone kind of like a butt-kicking splash. Because she is trying to adapt in the world at that at that time, um, she and Pine have some nice debates and kudos to the to the screenwriters on this. Of you know, she wants to save everybody, but Pine's character knows that there there are going to be casualties in war no matter what. And I think that's it's a that's a decent way of handling uh, some of the carnage. We 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 should never forget that in uh, Man of Steel, millions of people were killed, but but for entertainment value. Yeah, and this is, you know, basically, it, it, yeah, there's a lot of death, but it's basically a movie of idealism versus pragmatism. You know, she wants to save everybody. He says that's a wonderful, you know, thought, but you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah. It, it also helps, and uh, that she and Pine are surrounded by a, a pretty decent bench of oddball characters, uh, the guys that he works with. I mean, Suicide Squad was kind of an R, it should have been an R-rated, kind of dirty dozen uh, ocean story. And you have, you know, the gentleman from Train Spotting, and, you know, the the secretarial sidekick um, who, who come off the bench nicely, almost like a Richard Curtis film. Yeah, yeah. The, they were, I mean, they were nice. Not nice, they were fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys were fun, and it was they. That's why I also, you know, in my review said that it had the tone of you know Captain America: First Avenger because these were like you know the sidekicks 
that show up, you know, in the early Avengers, uh, you know, movie. Mm -hmm. Those type of guys. Yeah. So it's, uh, it has some, like I said, I think Patty Jenkins looked at the, you know, last few DC movies and said, you guys just leave me alone. Let me do this my way. Don't you interfere. And, you know, I think it's for the better. And I hope that, you know, if, if there's another, of which there probably will be a Wonder Woman sequel, she directs it. And I hope DC is smart enough to hire her to do other movies. Uh, doesn't just have to be Wonder Woman. I mean, I bet you she'd kick ass with the Superman movie. That would be that would be very cool indeed. Um, so yeah, they, the film uh, overall, it, I would say the, it clocks in at about two twenty. I, I for and for me, the the action sequences that that pair up the last third of the film, kind of like the other DC films, could have been, could have been tightened up a little bit. And right. Yeah, that's just what happens. I mean, that's you know, and of course we're old men. We complain about action scenes that, you know, that uh, if they if they're not at least ten seconds long, we we complain because of our attention spans. Well, and also, uh, without giving anything away, it was sort of if you know how to look at casting, yeah, in a movie, you know, it's obvious. You know where I'm going. Yeah, I do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, yeah, I'll say if you if you are going to have a uh, a character turn, there's some obvious actors you shot. You probably shouldn't cast. He's not in this film, but Liev Schreiber is a great example of that. Right. There, there's an actor that we like, and it's not really a surprise when when the surprise happens. I, that was the next thing on my list, Bob. Yeah, good call. Yeah, I, I sort of figured that out. Um, you know, like 20 seconds, 10 <laughs> seconds after I saw him on the screen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, we, we, we but, but ladies and gentlemen, if these are the big quibbles we have, it's still, it's still a solid fun film and, and you should go check it out. I gave it three and a half out of four. Very good. Okay, um, shifting gears a little bit, there are two smaller films out there if you don't want to wait in lines at the multiplex. And uh, I think there is a rite of passage if you are an English actor of a certain age that eventually you get a chance to play Winston Churchill. And I think of Albert Finney. I think of Timothy Spall. I think Spall's done it at least twice in two other things. Just for an older actor to say one of our favorite words, Bob, nalsy. Yeah, and also you have Simon Ward as a young Winston. There, ah, very good. See, he's also the uh, he's also one of the historians here, folks. But uh, but this uh, this time around, Brian Cox gets a chance to play uh, Winston Churchill in a film called Churchill. Uh, it also stars Miranda Richardson as his wife, John Slattery as Eisenhower. Um, it, yeah, there's a there's a Mad Men joke in there somewhere, but I'm not going to. This time right. this time around, we get a vulnerable. Winston Churchill, and it, it deals with Churchill's involvement in World War II, especially the starting out in June of 1944, where he is more of a figurehead than somebody who's actually on the ground with the troops, which is what he wants to do, but he knows he's too old for that. Um, right. There's an opening scene on the beach, and as he's walking with his cane and his hat falls off and lands in bloody water or as he sees it as bloody water so churchill's hat in bloody water 
that's about as subtle as the film gets, and it doesn't let up, which is which is kind of a shame. There's a lot of dialogue of him uh, wanting to inspect the troops, and he should be out uh, out on the boats, and you know, twenty thousand men may be dead, and it might be on his hands. So heavy-handed dialogue, heavy-handed directing at times. I don't know if we need slow motion footage of Churchill getting dressed, prepped for a, a speech, like it's a John Woo film. Um, but I like Brian Cox, and he's fine. I mean, if, if you're if you're a fan of history and you're a fan of Brian Cox, uh, just for the record, he's the, one of the classic that guys. Um, probably best known as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter was in X Men right. was in X Men Two was Daphne's dad on Frasier. Bob, do you have some favorite uh, Brian Cox moments? Well, you mentioned my favorite one already. Of course, was you know the first Hannibal Lecter. And which, by the way, they spelled Lecter wrong in this movie. Really? In Manhunt, they had him L-E-K-T-O-R. Ah, but, but then again, who's going to tell Michael Mann that? Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yes, and, and my favorite Lecter connection is the story goes that when Cox was doing Manhunter, Anthony Hopkins was in London playing King Lear. Guess what play Brian Cox was working on while Silence of the Lambs was being filmed? Uh, King Lear. Ding, 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 ding. So, anyway, so if you're if you're a war fan, uh, Churchill is up your alley. There's also an Israeli romantic comedy called The Wedding Plan, and it's a young woman who wants to be married, doesn't want to be alone, and basically rents a hall, gets a dress before she gets a groom. And when you have a film like this, I keep wondering how would how would Hollywood destroy this film? Um, we do get the series of men who male misfires who show up and look like it's going to be a chance and then doesn't happen. There is a character that we meet early on that uh, you're probably going to see again at the end of the film. Um, of course, yes, of course. It 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 is the tone of it is good. It's probably it's an hour and fifty minutes. It could have been an, it could have been ninety minutes easily, but it's not zany. It's not it's not Hollywood dumb, but it does have some traits that people want from romantic comedies, like singing in a car, having a woman literally waiting at the altar, and and uh, it does push the right buttons for romantic comedies. It just so happens that this one's set in Israel instead of Southern California. So, that- well, when they remake it. <laughs> and there's the American remake with Catherine Hagel. And she'll hate it. Yeah, we'll hate it. <laughs> well, she'll hate it, and, and she won't have fun working on it. So, anyway, go, go check the original one out there. Okay, Bob, when was the last yeah. time when was the last time you were at the drive-in? The last time I was at the drive-in? Yes. Oh, God. Let's see. It's probably been 30 years. And you, were, I'm assuming you were in the front seat, not the back. Oh, yeah. Uh, I could tell you a story. Uh, Please my do. wife used to get angry at me because when we were dating, we'd go to drive-ins and I'd watch the movie. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. No, wait, honey, this sequence is really cool. Well, you know, it's coming up on 46 years for us. So, <laughs> you know, she she just accepts me for who I am. She knows who I am and what I am. It's even worse when you've or when you've been to the drive-in, Bob, and you already saw the film once. That's true. All right. Well, here over at the uh, at the Tibbs drive-in. Oh, ha- actually, another drive-in question: Have you ever been to a drive-in that had a really odd pairing? Uh, 
let's see, a really odd pairing. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, I, when I lived in this little town called Springfield, Ohio, uh, they had, because the indoor theaters wouldn't play it, they had Last Tango in Paris. On a drive-in? Yeah. And I don't remember what the second feature was, but I do remember it was a horror film. It may have been The Velvet Vampire. Oh, but, my God. But, yes. And true story, the uh, sheriff, the county sheriff, mm. you, know, you, know the, you know, the controversy about Last Tango in Paris. The, was a, the butter a scene. scene and everything. Yeah. Well, so after the movie, the sheriff and the, prosecu- the county prosecutor called me and asked me if the movie was obscene, and I said, no, the only re- the only thing you could arrest the movie for is boredom. <laughs> wow. Nice. I so, <laughs> Who in the hell would put Last Tango on a drive-in? Man. Because the, uh, the two indoor theaters in Springfield didn't want to play it. <sighs> um... You know, I, I have joked about doing an art house drive-in, and I, I couldn't imagine uh, that on a on a 60-foot screen or even taller. I forget how tall screens are these days, but uh, yeah. well, wow. It was, it's not good on a big screen, small screen, <laughs> medium screen. There you go. It's a movie I never liked. Obviously, um, yes. <laughs> okay, well, here's here's some uh, – here because so, occasionally we'd still get the odd pairings of – of films at the drive-in, but these uh, looking at the Tibbs, these, these kind of make sense. So on screen one, we have uh, we have Wonder Woman and we have Snatched, two female-driven pictures there. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, screen, no. did you see Snatched? No, my wife did, but uh, when I was at my film convention last week, she went to see it because she likes Goldie Hawn uh-huh. and Amy Schumer, so. She enjoyed it. Okay. Well, that's sometimes that's all that matters. Um, yeah. Okay. Screen two, Baywatch and Alien Covenant. Well, yeah. well, you know, people say The Rock, Dwayne Johnson is out of this world. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> sorry. They, no, no uh, not as sorry as me, but that's okay. Um, two hour rated. edit that out. No, it's staying in. Like I've never, like I've never said anything dumb ever, and this is my show. Uh, <laughs> screen three, a couple of PG thirteen action films: Pirates of the Caribbean and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Well, I'd rather see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two twice than having to see Johnny Depp, you know, as Jack Sparrow again. I wish. <laughs> Sparrow would fly away permanently. Well, you know, it, uh, when you have your own island, they don't come cheap. So, you know, you got to maintain. That's true. Um, I'm, I'm just glad. I hope when he plays the Invisible Man, he actually is. <laughs> well, he is showing up in uh, Murder on the Orient Express, so he can't be a complete goofball in that, right? That's, well, let's see. You know, I saw the trailer for that, but... He's not playing Hercule Poirot, isn't that? No, that's Brana. Like, no, it's, that's Brana. So yeah. I'm hoping that Depp plays the Richard Widmark murder victim so he'd be out of the film quickly. That might be. I, I have not checked exactly who who is playing whom, but that might be the case. So we'll, well, good. We'll so he'll be out of the film. Quickly. There you go. And then finally on screen four, a couple of PG films for kids, uh, Captain Underpants, followed by Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul. 
Well, that's pretty good. That's good. That makes sense. So that's that's over at the Tibbs, over at the Skyline Drive-In. We have Pirates of the Caribbean and Alien Covenant. Sure. All right. Um, what did you think of Alien Covenant, Bob? Uh, I thought it was uneven. Uh, I'm getting sort of tired of Ridley Scott dragging this out. I ended my review saying that, you know, he set it up for another sequel and that I hope that this sequel ends with the Nostromo appearing on the horizon. Thank you. So we could finally just, you know, end the darn thing. (laughs) You know, the first Alien was, you know, a very good movie, even though it was derivative of, you know, It the Terror from Beyond Space, but still, Mm -hmm. it was that and Aliens were good movies and Ever since then, the whole thing's been going downhill. Um, I saw a review of Alien Covenant in The Onion, in the, actually the AV Club of The Onion, which I, I still think is one of the best entertainment sources online. And, Bob, you, I, they made this comparison, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. The, the critic who reviewed Alien Covenant compared Alien Covenant to, to an old Hammer horror film. Do you see that connection as far as storyline? An old, it all depends on what. Well, I, I guess. I guess you replace yeah. planet with a castle. I guess is yeah. is is probably the question, and it's not so much yeah, that probably you can, yeah, with uh, Christopher Lee instead of uh, Michael Fassbender. It could work. That's a tough trade. Know? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, I, even though I like Fassbender, Fassbender, you know, and and the other thing about that movie is. When the I don't, I don't want to give things away, but yep. the surprise ending wasn't much of a surprise. No, um, even surprise endings aren't. And I'm trying to figure out if that's me from seeing too many movies in my life, or if that's just poor screenwriting. Um, probably a little bit of both. And uh, you don't you you can't apologize for your own history. You can't apologize. You should apologize for bad writing. Yeah. And, you know, for the second time in a row, Fassbender is the MVP of the Alien films. And, uh, you know, that's not saying a whole, whole hell of a lot. But, uh, but yeah, he no. was he was the fun thing about both both, both of those films. Um, right. Okay, moving over to the historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin. Uh, again, this all depends on when you're listening to this show. Uh, today at 2 o'clock and 7.30 p.m., you can you can see this on at home and you can see it on TCM and that sort of thing but there's nothing like seeing an old film on the big screen but the Artcraft Theater in Franklin Bob they're showing Key Largo. Oh, Key Largo. I love Key Largo. Yeah. Yeah, there is you know between this and the petrified forest if I mean it's it's easy to make a people trapped in one location kind of story. Um, Key Largo is definitely one of the best. Yeah, and it gives, you know, it's one of Edward G. Robinson's best performances, you know, in in the late 40s, you know, and this is right before the period when he was blacklisted. This is one of the last, you know, decent films he made before he was blacklisted and had to start making almost, you know, anything. High-profile B-movies. To uh, sustain his art collection, actually, he had to sell off his art collection. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, you know Humphrey Bogart, Laura McCall, Edward G. Robinson, uh, just a f- 
fun, fun cast. So yep. you get a chance to see that on the big screen. Uh, Tuesday, June 6th, you have an American Tale, Fievel Goes West. And then uh, June 9th and 10th, Dirty Dancing. So make a point of those. Did you? Yeah, did, don't put your baby in a corner. <laughs> Knew you would say that. Knew that. All right. Sorry. No, 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 no. We this is you know pun pun radio. It's what we do. Okay. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts, Bob. Uh, I I have the uh, the midnight movie series that's going to be at Keystone Arts, and it's starting next weekend. And I, looking at the titles, um, the the recurring theme I think is is visual films that mess with your head. So oh yuck. Uh, <laughs> not a good. I don't I don't like. The- I mess with my own head enough. I don't need other people to do it. Okay. Go ahead. I'll keep an open mind. What are they showing? All right, here we go. June 9th and 10th, Wolfgang Peterson's film, The Neverending Story. Okay. It's a good film. <laughs> it, it, my daughter didn't dig it. Um, I, I'm thinking about going, but I'm not sure. June 16th and 17th, this is one I'm excited for because this never got a, a video release in the United States. And I love the director because he's a lunatic. Ken Russell's The Devils. Oh my God! <laughs> that is now that's a movie that'll that Ken Russell at his most extravagant, over the top, you know, screaming nuns, <laughs> naked screaming nuns, frenzies. Yep, um, crooked headed Vanessa Redgrave and uh, Oliver Reed is not quite a Christ figure, right? Uh, yeah, this is this, ladies and gentlemen. I, I I make no bones. I love Ken Russell because he was his, he was his own zip code. He was a he was a loon, and if his film soared or crashed, it was really all on him. It was not test audiences and studio heads were not tinkering with his work. It was basically him as is for the most part. And The Devils is a great example of this. This is more. Um, Tommy Listomania than say the boyfriend and women in love. Yes, but you know, here's the man who got Jack Nicholson to sing. So yeah, and that man now has two musicals under his belt. So that's that's yep. really okay. Um, all right, June twenty third and twenty fourth. It's a favorite here at Film Sociology. Tommy Wiseau's The Room. <sighs> the Room. <laughs> okay. Did you, now have you seen a film in the theater? No. But you've heard us yammer about it. I believe so, yes. Okay, that's all right. Um, June 30th and July 1st, uh, Miyazaki's Ponyo. Ponyo. Studio, the, Studio uh, Ghibli. Anime, I just saw part. Where was that on? I just saw part of it. I like the anime. I like those Japanese movies, those animated features. Mm-hmm. They're very weird. Yeah. I mean, they're not your traditional Disney Warner Brothers animation. And... They, a lot of them make a point, which yes. is nice. And I, I, I always think Ponyo is the uh, Miyazaki Studio Ghibli 101. I mean, there's it's there's elements of if you must elements of the Little Mermaid, uh, you know, of a fish becoming a child. Um, this is one I think they're showing the the English dub version. So yeah, and there was a deal that uh, Ghibli did with Disney. So you hear some familiar voices, but yeah, visually just a lot of fun. Uh, they're following. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say it would be now. This is just my own prejudice. I would rather see it in Japanese with subtitles, even though the subtitles would blur a little of the animation. I prefer 
foreign films in their original languages. As do I, and in this case, beggars can't be choosers. However, however, Bob, uh, July 7th and 8th, in Japanese, with English subtitles, um, the, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, also from Studio Ghibli, the Asayu Takahata film Grave of the Fireflies. I have never seen that. There you go. So mark your calendars there. July 14th and 15th, the independent film The Love Witch. Well, well, basically, I think it's a female witch looking for male victims, and it's not Skinamax. Um, haven't seen that one either. Neither it, have I. I'm sorry. Sounds like a porno movie. Uh, I think that, that HBO would show you know, their late-night movies, you know? Right. Those soft-core movies. Maybe maybe it's movies. maybe it was on the second bill with Last Tango at the drive-in. Um, might have been. Might have been. Okay. July 21st and 22nd, in French with English subtitles, Fantastic Planet. Ah, a lovely movie. That was a great science fiction movie. I think that was, and that was one of the first films for me that I came across animated films that were made for grownups. Right. Uh, you know, in the seventies, you had, and I, I mean, I was, I was already warned about my, about from my dad about Ralph Bashke that I was not going to see any of his work. But there was Fantastic Planet, Watership Down. The Mouse and His Child, a Raggedy Ann and Andy film that were all really it, it was not Disney, it was not uh it was not Peanuts, you know, it was not none of those. Right. So and then finally, July twenty eighth and twenty ninth, John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Now, <laughs> this is the actual movie, not the musical version. Oh, uh, it's a film version of that music well, it was a film then right. it was a musical, but yeah. That's right. Okay, that's if that you want something to mess with your head and make you squeamish. Go ahead. <laughs> there you go. I'll... So all of those are happening at midnight at the Keystone Arts Cinema. Um, well, it's very brave. Well, I don't want to use the word brave. It's very nice of them to offer movies that are out of the mainstream. Yes. I wish there were more theaters that would take chances and do that. And I will back you up and say that I hope that people who want to see alternative movies would make the effort to go see some of these films. Mm -hmm. Were you a were you a big night movie a midnight movie fan, Bob, in your younger days? Not really, because uh, you know, first of all, most of the time, you know, when I my newspaper work, I was working till midnight. So once in a while on a weekend, I'd go see something. I mean, I, I saw Rocky Horror a couple times. So that was basically it because, you know, uh, my days off usually when I was working was, uh, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday so I can go to screening. So I also worked weekends, and I usually worked till midnight. So I didn't have much of an opportunity to go to midnight movies. Okay. and Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and now you have time, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I have all the time in the world, and then good singing there, and then and then you can just do nothing the next day. Oh yeah, well that's what I do all the time. See, there you go. Okay, um, I mean this is film sociology. I'm Matthew Sosi, hanging out with Bob Bloom. Bob Bloom's on the phone. Get him in. I'll, I will get him in studio one of these days. But uh, Bob, I'm I'm looking at the video release sheet of old and new titles this week and uh not a, as far as the new titles really thin see if see if you, first off if you saw any of these and if they did anything for you here we go fist fight the shack before i fall 
Collide and the Black Coat's Daughter. I scan. I got the Blu-ray on Fist Fight. I scanned it and I said, "Eh." <laughs> that's that's I mean, a big pile of eh. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, my wife used to be a teacher, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I had this prejudice. You know, even though teachers make nice comic figures in movies. You know, the way the education system is now, the way people attack teachers and the education system, I just didn't think it was that funny. Yeah. In, in Fist Fight, it's the dueling teachers. It's Ice Cube and Charlie Day who have to, who are going to have a title uh, right. af- after school. So it's basically 3 o'clock high, but with, st- with teachers instead of students. Right. And as for the shack, you know, if you like that sort of thing, uh I'm sort of a cultural Jew agnostic. It's on your business card. Yeah. So, you know, my type of of biblical movie is Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments. You know, these sincere faith-based movies, some of them are okay, but it's sort of you have to have a certain mindset of faith to enjoy those movies. Little, and little, unfortunately, 40-some-odd years in newspaper has made me too much of a cynic. little too preaching to the choir at times. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so so those are the new titles. So then I looked at some of the old titles that are now out, and, and the old titles that are now out on Blu-ray are, are for, more fascinating. So here we go. Um Criterion, one of the Criterion films that they put out is Terry Zweigoff's Ghost World, which is a film that helped introduce the world to Scarlett Johansson for a lot of people. Do you remember Ghost right. World? Yes. Vaguely. This I mean, was um, two, uh, Thor I Birch. Think I, yeah, I think I saw it a long time ago, and if I remember, it was a decent movie. Yeah, it's Thor. And Criterion does put out a lot of good stuff. It's a Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson just graduating high school, and it's it's based on a graphic novel of uh, you know their their adventures throughout the summer, including with Thora Birch striking up an odd friendship with seventy uh, eight's record collector Steve Buscemi. So uh, anyway, it's, it's it's pretty good. Um, right. I I am a sucker for this. I don't know if you need this on Blu Ray, but now Bob Bloom, you can own Blackenstein on Blu Ray if if you have the if you have the chance. I know I can, but you know what? I think I'll pass. Ah, there you go. All right. (laughs) If you like black black exploitation horror films, then that's your ticket. Yes, it makes uh, makes makes Blackula seem like the universal classic stuff of the '30s. Exactly. Uh, From 1961, the Billy Wilder James Cagney comedy One Two Three. I'm glad you brought that up. I just watched that yesterday. Yeah? Because I ordered it because a very dear friend of mine who I've known, <clears throat> excuse me, for over 30 years does the commentary track on it. Really? Yes. Uh, my friend Michael Schlesinger. Uh, he's been doing commentaries on uh, a lot of the Kino Lorber releases uh, lately, and I usually uh, get blu-rays or dvds in which he is doing the commentary because he is very knowledgeable he discusses 
he makes the movie very more enjoyable for his insight. So I am, I will plug one, two, three. Plus, it is a very funny movie, one of Billy Wilder's best, and Cagney gives a wonderful performance. Even though when you really stop and think about it, he's an SOB, his character. <laughs> yes, um, this is one, and, and I think it's one of I think it's one of Wilder's underrated films, and also the fact that it was a rare opportunity to see Cagney do comedy, and right. uh, he plays he plays a Coca Cola merchant in uh, in Berlin, yeah, and Berlin. Uh, dealing with a business deal, his daughter. I mean, it is a fast paced farce. Yes, it is. That, and an interesting thing about this, yeah. which uh, Michael brought up in his commentary, during the uh, making of the film, the Berlin Wall uh, went up. So they had to sort of build sets and improvise because they had actually been shooting, excuse me, filming in East Berlin, part of the film. Oh, man. I forgot about that. And... Uh, they had to build sets and uh, make some changes in the script because of that. Hmm. Um, so there's an interesting point. Appreciate that. And there's also this was also Cagney's last film before he went on a 20-year hiatus. Right. And that is discussed in the, um, as a matter of fact, that is the, uh, Michael Schlesinger also discusses that aspect in the movie and one of uh, one of the reasons that Cagney retired was because, you know, all the dialogue he had and the fast pace of the movie, it was wearing him down, and he just wasn't having fun. Plus, he got a postcard from some of his old movie friends who were off fishing, saying, "Wish you were here." And he said, "Yeah, what am I doing here? I've been doing this for thirty plus years. I should be fishing with my friends." So he hung it up after this movie. Yep, and then uh, came back for Ragtime, and that was it. That was it. Well, good timing there. Um, so that's out on Blu-ray. Also out on Blu-ray from 1980, Bob, do you remember the horror film The Hearse? Yes, vaguely. It was, let's see, that wasn't uh, Larry Cohen, was it? No, this no. this was uh, George Bowers, and it was with uh, Trish Vandeveer and Joseph Cotton. Yeah, I think I'm not remember that much about it. I just know I wasn't impressed with it. Right. It was kind of I think the car came out around the same time and those you know both of those films owe Duel a great deal of uh, credit. Right. Um yeah. that is out there also on Blu-ray uh the if I remember right the last collaboration between Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster with Tough Guys back in 1987. Oh yeah. That wasn't a very good move. That movie basically rests on nostalgia for those two guys yep yep exactly and uh you know if there were two guys that could still throw a punch and and flirt on a woman in 1987 it was those guys so that was about it and then finally on blu-ray of and i'll be talking about this on next week's show but the academy award nominated pell the conqueror for max von Sydow and billy august directing right uh i remember seeing that I think I saw that many years ago, and I sort of liked it. But, you know, foreign films, some foreign films sometimes seem pretentious to me. But I think I like this one. Okay. If I remember correctly. 
Well, it, it might be on your pile, so you can go check that out for a little bit. Right. Um, speaking of old titles, I have to, I have to, because I'm, I'm doing the show right now. I want to publicly thank Bob Bloom for letting me borrow his copies of Willard and Ben, um, which were two films that I remember seeing as a kid, and I got a chance to revisit it. And this is the first time it's on; it's been on disc of any kind. Uh, I know. I think it was on. It was. It was on you know, video cassette decades ago. But this is the first time it got a disc release, and uh, and Bob, I I was kind of surprised at at the lightness of tone of both films. I think people remember maybe the last twenty minutes of each film more than the than the films themselves as a whole. Yeah, I think people mostly remember the rats. Yep. And yeah. They are like the thing, you know, I always think about very weird technical stuff with movies like this. Like, mm-hmm. I always wonder, well, who are the rat wranglers and what are they doing? <laughs> you know, how do they round up all the rats and keep them in line? Yep. And, uh... You know, and well, how do you get Michael Jackson to sing Ben? Well, yeah, they're, they're, and that, that's addressed a little bit. Yeah, there there is talk about the animal Wrangler. That could be at least an hour-long documentary feature in and of itself because the, both films had particular rats that had particular skills as far as running and jump, you know, scurrying right. and eating, that sort of thing. Um, Willard, starting with Willard, Bruce Davison, of course, is the star who is a, a kid, a, basically a young man, but is still treated like a child from his mother, from his boss, played by Ernest Borgnine, and uh, finally befriends a rat named Ben and uh, and eventually turns the, ta- turns the tables on anybody who crosses his path. And uh, I mean, Davison was kind of a, was a young actor at that time. Had a couple credits to his name, and uh, this was something that it it could have easily typecast him as as kind of an uh, you know the outcast oddball, uh, which is funny right. because Crispin Glover played this role in a remake decades later. That's right, he did. I forgot all about the remake. Not bad. That's, Not bad in no. itself. <laughs> um, so I've always consi- you know I've always considered Willard and Ben, you know sort of like a progression. You know, you start with Jaws, and you you start with sharks, then you go to uh, Orca, the killer whale, you know, then you yep. go to tentacles, you have octopus, then you move on to land, you know, <laughs> and, and you have Kingdom of the Spiders that's sort of in the West, mm-hmm. and uh, what else do you have? You have Night of the Le- Lepus, you yep. know. Killer bunnies. Yeah, and then you sort of move into urban type areas. And what's more urban than rats? <laughs> well, and this was um I think 1971 and 1973. So this was this was before These not, were before Jaws. I but know. yeah, but I but I see what you're saying is you know there there are waves and flows of of ebbs and flows I should say of of scary things. Um right. you know, before you know this, and this is all before Halloween, and it's before The Exorcist. As far and this was, you know, small time stuff, uh, but yeah. yeah, nature nature was attacking in the seventies. Yeah, and it was different than the nature. You know, in the fifties, you had the giant bug films, and you know those were blamed on you know the A bomb test. Yep. You know, but now in, in the seventies, it's more nature. You know, more 
we abusing the environment and the environment is fighting back type of thing. Yep. And uh, watching this, and then Ben, what I didn't realize, Lee H. Montgomery is the boy who uh, befriends Ben, who somehow survives the last film. But I, uh, I, I didn't realize that the film is basically it's a kid with a with a rat film. It's uh, and and Montgomery did a few kid with a fill in the blank films, whether it was a hawk or a duck or a dog. You know, those it was there was a little bit of Born Free to it. And then, of course, the police investigation finding out killer rats terrorizing the town. Yeah. Well, you know, nothing wrong with if you're going to have killer rats, you might as well, you know, make them killers. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the thing is, I always watch, you know, the thing I like about the what I ask myself about these movies is when the actors read the script and it says that a rat's going to be overrunning you know rats going to be overrunning their bodies or running on their bodies do they ask for more money or do they say (laughs) you know i want to i'll go up to this point but once the rat gets past my knee put in the stunt double well yeah (laughs) and uh, both films have a commentary track bruce davison is interviewed for willard lee h montgomery is interviewed for ben and uh, both, uh, especially uh, Davison talked about rats love peanut butter. So that is what is put on you in order to get them into place. And I believe that he, Bruce tells a story that um, for Ernest Borgnine, one rat went a little higher than than was uh, anticipated. Oh, that must have been exciting. Probably still he probably still got more out of that than Ethel Merman. But anyway, um, probably. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah I don't know where the limit is on this, but I think but it, it was fun to watch Davison. You know, as an actor, you're dealing with an animal, and animals have a different mindset. You know, they're not classically trained. They're not stage actors. They're animals. So as an actor, you have to respond differently. And there's a lot of improv scenes of him dealing with. Ben and Socrates and other animals, and it's 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 really cool to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like it's not a Lassie movie. No, you know, we're, really or, twisted you know, Lassie movie. Yeah, it's it's not you know, dogs are a little more trainable, and you know, it's easier to work with a dog probably, even a horse, than a rat. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. I think the smaller the animal, the harder it is to work with. So yeah, and there's but 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 the use of use of rats in both films is is really well done. You know these are these are, these are low budget features that know exactly what they are. I mean it's not high art. It's they're not making a universal film. Um, it, it's a it's a low budget film with with you know little furry creatures, and they deliver on both ends for the most part. Yeah, yeah. If you. You know, if you like the idea of watching rats, then the and they're fun. They're they don't take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And and as you, you like rats. Yep. And as you mentioned, you as you mentioned, uh, sorry, Bob. Uh, ben is is also an Academy Award nominated film because of the song. Thanks, Michael Jackson. Yep. So. 
All right. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, hanging out with uh, Bob Bloom on the phone here at Film Sociology. Uh, we go to the portion of dead people we like because we don't have time for dead people we don't like. And, Bob, I find out that uh, Bond girl Molly Peters passed away at the age of 75. She was not the main Bond girl, but she was one of the secondary ones used in Thunderball. And I can hear Bob Google imaging Molly Peters right now. Molly Peters. <laughs> she must have gotten killed real early in the movie. Playing Patricia. This was her first that was her first credit and only other credits of note include uh Target for Killing, um Baker's Half Dozen on television and then in 1968 starred in the Jerry Lewis film Don't Raise the Bridge, Lower the River. And that's really about it. Well, then the Bond movie was a highlight of her career. There you go. So yeah, ladies and gentlemen, go go check out Thunderbolt. It's funny because I just picked up the uh, the James Bond 50th anniversary Blu-ray collection and was going through those because of Roger Moore's uh, passing last week. And I think this weekend I'll revisit uh, Thunderball, which is a, which is a personal favorite. Ah, uh, I like it. It's not my favorite, but I still enjoy it. Yep. And uh, you know, anytime you get Tom Jones to sing a thing, that's that's pretty good. That's true. So yeah, that's that's the nice thing about the Bond movies. <clears throat> All the singers they got to do the theme songs. Always fun. Yep. So uh, so Bob, what have um, I mean? We've we've covered quite a bit of ground here already. What have what have you watched recently that we haven't uh, we haven't spoken about? Old, new, or, or indifferent? Okay. Uh, there's a movie that came out. Earlier this year that I finally picked up on Blu-ray, it has been considered a lost movie. It's from 1933 called Deluge. Mm -hmm. It's black and white movie, and basically it's an end-of-the-world uh, disaster film before there were such a thing as disaster films. In the 1930s? Yep. Wow. This movie... Uh, the reason I've, I've known about this, well, I had it on VHS. The only print they had was in Italy. So the print, I mean, the uh, VHS, I believe, that I had was very badly, you know, uh, done. And it had English, but it had Italian subtitles. But the reason I like this movie is because they have this great, sequence of an earthquake and tidal wave that destroys New York City. And uh, you know how I am about old movie serials. Yes. And old Republic serials. Well, Republic bought this sequence. They somehow, I don't know how it worked, if they bought it or whatever. They just bought this one sequence of this earthquake and tidal wave destroying New York City and used it as stock footage in a couple serials, <laughs> which is the first place I had ever seen this footage. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see the whole movie. I mean, I'd seen it on VHS, but it wasn't very good. Uh, Kino Lorber picked it up. Somebody had found uh, the, uh, you know, got the original, found the original 35 millimeter nitrate print somewhere, restored the movie. And the weird thing is the disaster happens like in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, and then it becomes this love triangle survival story. 
It's a very strange movie, but it's a fun movie. Cool. How? And, Go ahead. And I'm just, you know, if if you if somebody wants to see something very odd, and an early example of a disaster film with some decent special effects, this is a movie to check out. Cool. How tall is your pile, Bob, of, of films that need to be watched? That need to be watched? Or what did, did you think needs to be watched? Oh, well, it's tall enough. I mean, I have over 3,300 Blu-rays and DVDs. So, you know, there's still a few hundred I haven't watched yet. But, you know, since retirement, a couple studios don't send me things anymore to review. So, I've, luckily, I've had to cut back but i've been picking up uh stuff uh i have some friends who uh like myself are old 50s uh horror film and science fiction buffs so we trade off stuff so like i just watched this very bad 1951 lippert uh production called the lost continent with caesar romero mm-hmm. it has stopped action very bad stop action dinosaurs you know i like that it's all these movies i saw as a kid that now i'm just sort of reliving my childhood and 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 how was your childhood in retrospect oh i had a very wonderful childhood (laughs) because uh let's see starting in 19 1958 59 they Opened the movie theater like within a mile of my house, within walking distance. Oh my! And they had Saturday matinees. Basically, I spent the next uh, three, four years going to this theater every Saturday morning. You know, seeing uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and you know whatever <laughs> them, yeah, you know, whatever fifties giant bug science fiction movie that came out in that era it turned up uh, seventh voyage of sinbad first movie i ever actually went to without my parents oh wow that had to been empowering oh it was i <laughs> love this in fact it's the one movie in my collection that i will never give up i'm gonna take that one to my grave with me <laughs> literally and figuratively well, actually, I'm going to be cremated, so I'll just have it <laughs> cremated with me. Nice. Do you remember the first film that scared you as a kid, and then you revisited it as a as an adult, and you felt slightly embarrassed? I, I asked the question, but I will I will say mine first, so I don't not always putting you on the spot. Madhouse, the the Vincent uh, Price film of the early '70s, scared the crap uh, out of me when I was ten, and then I watched it after I graduated, I think college, and and I felt kind of silly. Okay, mine was Horror of Dracula. Really? And, yeah, because my father is a big Bela Lugosi Dracula fan. Mm-hmm. So I was nine or ten years old, and he took me to a theater to see horror. We, we wanted to see Horror of Dracula. Now, all I had seen is, you know, Dracula, black and white. I'd never seen a stake driven into a vampire's heart. Right. So Horror of Dracula, you know, you see uh, when, you know, uh, Peter Cushing's Cushing's Van Helsing drives the stake into the, you know, the female vampire's heart. The blood comes gushing out. Yep. I sort of sort of turned a little green (laughs) 
at the time. So that was my first real uh, scare, I guess you'd call queasiness. But when I saw the film later, you know, I said, ah, it's not so bad. Of course, I had seen other stuff by then. I mean, by, you know, you know, the, the thing that did really scare me, the first thing that really sort of grossed me out was uh, David Warner losing his head in uh, The Exorcist. You mean The Never Omen? Never beheading before. You mean The Omen? Yeah, The Omen. I'm yep. sorry. Yeah, the That's Omen. That's all right. Okay, what did, what did your dad think of Horror of Dracula? He, well, my dad is a big Bela Lugosi fan, so he just said, yeah, it was okay, but Bella's still Dracula. <laughs> the other... And, you know, mm-hmm. I had a, I've always told my dad, and I, I, I told him this once. I said, Dad, I love you, but Dracula with Bela Lugosi is a very bad movie. It's basically a film <laughs> stage play. Everything happens off camera. It's not a good movie. Oh, and 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 I'm sure he I'm sure he appreciated that, son. Not really, <laughs> but you know he he used to tell me stories. You know when Dracula and and Frankenstein Dracula came or Dracula and Frankenstein in actual that order. He was born in '23, so he was like eight nine years old when these movies came out, and he saw them in the theaters. And he told me stories about you know women screaming and fainting. And I watch these movies, and I say, "Really? <laughs> Give me a break." My my daughter appreciates Dracula. She she's also kind of similar to that. Although although Renfield still freaks her out, so you know there there is that going for it. Yes. Ah, that reminds me of another horror film I just watched on Blu-ray that just came out. Yes, sir. It's called The Vampire Bat. It's an independent film. Uh, made in 1933 with Lionel Atwill. Mm. Uh, and Dwight Fry is in it as sort of a lo- uh, loony, the, the town idiot who just loves bats as pets. <laughs> with a ballad He's by Michael Jackson. Red, He's sort of the red herring in the movie. Oh, okay. Um, oh, going back to Horror of Dracula, we got about a minute left or so, but I also remember the, first off, watching Peter Cushing run and jump, that was always entertaining, but when when Dracula is exposed to sunlight, spoiler alert on a 60-year-old film, but um, but the, the melting, the decomposing of Dracula had not been done at that time, and that, I think no, that, it had. that, I'm sure that freaked some folks out. Didn't freak me out, I loved it. That <laughs> To me, that you know, I like that because you know you never saw a vampire destroyed before. Usually, you know everything you'd see, you'd see the guy knocking the stake into the heart or something, but you never looked down into the coffin. So, you know, when I saw, you know, when I saw this movie, that that part of it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the cool effect. Even back as a kid, I sort of, you know, realized what you know what special effects were. You know, after a week of watching. King Kong every night on Million Dollar Movie in New, growing up in New York. I knew what special effects were, so that didn't bother me. I love that. I was impressed by that. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, we gotta we got to wrap up the show, but I want to say to Bob, thank you so much for spending time with me. And this, the way this, this conversation ended, we should probably start the next one with the Women of Hammer Horrors, and that will take up an, an entire hour. So, Bob... I could tell, yes. One of my favorites, Veronica Carlson. Bob, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. You're welcome.
Go see we'll a, talk to you later. Yep. Go see a good oh. movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, Michigan. Also, go to realbob.com, R-E-E-L, bob.com, to read all about Bob Bloom and his movie stuff. Enjoy. I can't believe you've let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What I... parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. We'll... No. we'll do it live!